At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Deja vu, right? Did you know hope and despair are nearly identical in code? Now, my predecessor loved precision. His matrix was all fussy facts and equations. He hated the human mind. So he never bothered to realize that you don't give a shit about facts. It's all about fiction. The only world that matters is the one in here. And you people believe the craziest shit. Why? What validates and makes your fictions real? Feelings. You ever wonder why you have nightmares? Why your own brain tortures you? It's actually us maximizing your output. Here's the thing about feelings. They're so much easier to control than facts. Turns out in my matrix, the worse we treat you, the more we manipulate you, the more energy you produce. It's nuts. I've been setting productivity records every year since I took over. And the best part, zero resistance. People stay in their pots, happier than pigs in shit. The key to it all? You and her quietly yearning for what you don't have while dreading losing what you do. For 99.9% of your race, that is the definition of reality. Desire and fear, baby. Just give the people what they want, right? From the latest Matrix film, a box office dud and an underwhelming storyline. Yet the chief archon of this movie does lay the true cards of tyranny on the table. Even the critical drinker who hated the film thought the central oppression philosophy was spot on. That's how they get us, you see. The human mind isn't moved by facts, but by narrative. As Doctor Who said, our souls are not made of atoms, but stories. And that wickedness in high places has implanted synthetic, self-destructive stories in our psyches for millennia, ramping up the brainwashing recently as it elevates the mind-killer that is fear, the divide-and-conquer venom, and that safety for freedom fool's gold. I say, the Empire never ended. The Empire is the institution the codification of derangement. It is insane and imposes its insanity on us by violence, since its nature is a violent one. Now the collective human consciousness is on the brink of sanity starvation, collapsing into complete oblivion. But it's not too late, not close, especially if we continue to write our own gospel and live our own myth. The best way to pay attention to that demiurge behind the curtain. We'll be doing just that in this eternal now, 
as the amazing Paul Levy materializes at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, Wetiko, Healing the Mind Virus that Plagues Our World. It's early in the year, but I already know this might be the most important book of 2022. The most dangerous thing is believing you don't have it. That's the trick. The mind killer. Your disease convinces you you don't have it. So welcome to the machine, my son, and the means to escape it. You have arrived at the home of your authentic self. This is madness! Rush! Rush! AM Bite Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring you the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here. For you are a shining crazy diamond that should be seen and can ignite the universe with so much wonder. That's the message of the myth. You, as you know yourself, are not the final term of your being. And uh, you must die to that one way or another. In giving of yourself to something or in being annihilated. This quote by Philip K. Dick truly summarizes Paul's work on Wittiko and the very ethos of Aeon Bite. It goes, The creator of this world is demented. The world is not as it appears, in order to hide the evil in it, a delusive veil obscuring it and the deranged deity. There is another, better realm of God, and all our efforts are to be directed toward returning there and bringing it here. Our actual lives stretch thousands of years back, and we can be made to remember our origin in the stars. Each of us has a divine counterpart, unfallen, who can reach a hand down to us to awaken us. This other personality is the authentic waking self, The one we have now is asleep and minor. We are in fact asleep and in the hands of a dangerous magician disguised as a good god, the deranged creator deity. You know what you think about it? Same god made you and me also made a rattlesnake. That just don't make no sense. The bleakness, the evil, and pain in this world The fact that it is a deterministic prison controlled by the demented creator causes us willingly to split with the reality principle early in life and so to speak willingly fall asleep in delusion. You can pass from the delusional prison world into the peaceful kingdom if the true good God places you under his grace and allows you to see reality through his eyes. A wise man once said, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, 
doesn't go away. You decide what is real and what is not. You. Your will. Doesn't get better than that. And just wait for Paul Levy's interview. We could only do an hour, however. We conducted the interview on New Year's Eve. Paul was hosting visitors from out of town, and a brutal virus was visiting me. A oh, fuck off. We'll continue and expand our conversation with Paul's third book on Wittico, coming out later this year. Anyway, as a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include my interview with Jerry Morzinski and Sherry Sweeney on their clinical work and personal experiences with the Arconic Mind Parasites. A perfect companion to this show. It will chill your bones and be even more of that red pill suppository you need more than ever. <sighs> why, oh why didn't I take the blue pill? Keep in mind that 80% of shows are complete for subscribers, even as I often like to give full ones away for special occasions or with Finding Hermes. In short, if you find value in this content, please continue to support this red pill cafeteria. I'll continue raising my game and bringing you that game-changing Valis pink beam information through the year. We need that trashy Gnostic Gnosis, as Philip K. Dick called it, more than ever. If it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. It is said Gnosis is the knowledge of the heart, and it was Blaise Pascal who wrote, The heart has reasons that reason cannot know. Love isn't something we invented, it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'd like to end with a reading from Paul's book, just one of many mind-expanding and reality-disbanding sections. It's The Four Ignoble Blindnesses of Wetiko. Here it is. 1. You are blind to your own blindness, or doubly blind. You're blind and you do not know you are blind and in fact imagine that you can see clearly and come to believe that you can see more clearly than those who are clear-sighted. You then become unaware of what it is to be sighted, as you have no reference point for comparison. 2. You are blind to the very existence of Wetiko and its malign effects within your mind. You do not see how you are unwittingly colluding with Wetiko's pernicious effects and thereby you are unaware of how you are having negative or ill effects upon others and the world. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. 3. You are blind to your own light, which is to say that Wetiko blocks you from seeing both your own darkness as well as your own light. You are blinded to and incapable of seeing your true nature and identify instead with a false imposter of who you truly are. 4. You are blind to the fact that Wetiko is a revelation. 
Being blind to your blindness, being blind to the existence of Wetiko, and being blind to your own life necessarily results in being blind to Wetiko's revelatory function. Wetiko is potentially revealing your own creative genius, power, and agency. Recognizing that Wetiko is a revelation is to realize that Wetiko contains encoded within it not just its own medicine and cure, but a blessing, for it is helping you to wake up to the dreamlike nature of the universe and to remember who you actually are. In a word, that they are a dream, and you, the maker of it. There is no God, no universe, no human race, no earthly life, no heaven, no hell. It is all a dream, a grotesque and foolish dream. Nothing exists but you, and you are but a thought. Beautifully said. Time to wake up. Time to see. Time to be your true self instead of that false B-movie story implanted in your consciousness. Let us to our interview with Paul. Right now you're feeling good about what you've done. You should. It was a victory. Bravo. Now what? You've come here to negotiate some kind of deal? You think you hold all the cards because you can do whatever you want in this world. I say, go for it. Remake it. Knock yourselves out. Paint the sky with rainbows. But here's the thing. The sheeple aren't going anywhere. They like my world. They don't want this sentimentality. They don't want freedom or empowerment. They want to be controlled. They crave the comfort of certainty. And that means you two, back in your pods, unconscious and alone, just like them. If we don't know what's real, can't resist. They took your story, something that meant so much to people like me, and turned it into something trivial. It's what the Matrix does. And weaponizes every idea, every dream, everything that's important to us. This is the Aeon Bide interview, and with us we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Paul Levy to discuss his book, Wetiko, Healing the Mind Virus That Plagues Our World. Paul, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here with you, really, just can't thank you enough. Oh, the pleasure is all ours. And uh, yes, your work definitely spoke to me. And I know we'll speak to the audience because we've been covering these subjects for many years. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just fine. And looking forward to this, as I always do with our interesting guests. Um, very, very uh, pertinent to Gnosticism. Definitely. Well, Paul, why don't we start with the reason you wrote this book? Your book, uh, Dispelling Waitiko, is very popular. Uh, is this the sequel, or why did you decide to write this work? Yeah, well, you could say it's the sequel um, or the companion volume, but basically when I wrote 
um, the first Watiko book, Dispelling Watiko, you know, I thought that would be it. And because I had had a deep experience with Watiko that that completely changed the trajectory of my life. And so for years, I was tracking it and wrote Dispelling Watiko. But then I kept getting downloads just more and more. It was like I had plugged into some to something, to some sort of source. And I began to, to have the realization of just more, even more ways than I had written about, about pointing out Watiko. And, um, you know, because the whole basis of my work is trying to help people to see it. Because as long as we don't see this mind virus, it has power over us. So I, you know, that's why I wrote the new book. But then as soon as I finished that I've already written a third book and that wow. I've given over to the publisher. That'll be out um, in 2022. And, and I'm already in my imagination writing a fourth book. So it's kind of an endless stream of, of revelations that I've been having about, you know, have in essence how to see what because that's like, I'm saying that's the real basis of my work. Oh, we look for, yeah, you got to follow those downloads and we look forward to your next book because I, I really enjoyed this book. And you say you had a, a vision of Wittico. Uh, could you share with that? Oh, no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't anything like that. It was a living experience. Uh, I, I was like um, in my life, like I'm 65 now when I was, you know, in my late teens, early to mid 20s, I had uh, a direct encounter um with Watiko through the instrument of my father he was just you know the conduit through which this energy came through and it created such incredible suffering for me and um that forced me to go inwards uh because of the overwhelming trauma of of you know really directly experiencing I didn't have the name Watiko then, but just this unbelievably evil energy that he was seemingly taken over by and acting out. And, and it literally came into me. It was like my boundaries had just gotten so violated and transgressed. It was like getting this, this, this transfusion of Watiko into my soul. And then I went so deeply inwards to try to heal that I had a, you know, a, profound life transforming spiritual awakening in within 24 hours i get thrown in my first mental hospital so between 1981 and 82 i you know kept on getting put in psych wards as i was awakening to the dreamlike nature but i was i wasn't integrated yet i was trying i was so excited trying to express what i was realizing that the only thing that western medicine knew to do was pathologize me and then I began to realize, you know, not quite then because I didn't have the language, but afterwards, oh my God, it was that same evil energy that came through my father. Now was coming through this system of psychiatry. It was like this energy pervaded the non-local field. And over the years, that's when I began to realize, oh my God, this is like, it, it exists in the collective unconscious of our species. It operates through the non-local field as an inner disease of the soul that actually manifests through the medium of the outside world. And so it took me a number of decades of drawing maps and tracking and articulating what I was having this revelation of. And that's when I wrote my first book on Watiko.
Yeah, it's interesting, too, uh, talking about why you have to write different books or show different ways. Because as you write, Paul, the more we try to see them or define them, the more they change or morph. So you almost have to bring all these examples from the Archons to Carlos Castaneda's The Predator to... Uh, uh, the Kelepoth to a mind virus. So, yeah, it's almost like as soon as you grab onto the concept, by definition, they're going to find a way to basically shift or change your very reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like a key factor that you need to factor into the equation as you're trying to map Watiko because it's, it's shape-shifting. And um, as soon, you know, I know people who say, oh, I found it and it looks like an amoeba <laughs> or a parasite. And, and, you know, right away, I realize they have no idea what they're talking about because what you go, it's, it's formless that can take on and assume any form, you know, and as soon as you see it, it, in a way, it has the awareness that you're seeing it and it can't stand to be exposed because when you see it, you take away its power over you and you empower yourself and so as soon as you see it like you were saying it will immediately shapeshift into a new disguise and so that's in a way i'm trying to point that that part of the process out and and it's like one beautiful image um to describe this or the process um because, because keep in mind if we don't come to terms with what if we don't see it and it doesn't make a difference what name you call it because every spiritual tradition calls it different names. And that's one of the things I talk about in my new book. But if we don't come to terms with it, then we're fated to destroy ourselves. And that's being evidenced all around us in the world today. But this beautiful image to describe it, it's like when the physicists discovered the quantum, the way they described it, they, they said it was like we came across this never seen before animal. And we, you know, had it in this animal house and there were windows all around the animal house. And we would go around and, and peer through each of the windows and each perspective showed a totally this different version of the animal, keeping in mind, we had never seen an animal like this. And then when we all came together and described what we saw through all the different, uh, all the windows, we began to assemble like a more comprehensive picture of the strange creature that we had discovered in the quantum. And that's like a perfect way of describing Watiko in that it has all these different ways of manifesting. And, you know, that's why I describe it as a mind virus, as a parasite, as a tapeworm, very much like the archons, like a cancer of the soul, a counterfeiting spirit, a demon, a higher dimensional entity, on and on and on to try to give people a sense of what what's the nature of the beast that we're dealing with. Yeah, it's all these things and nothing. I think that's the yeah, the yeah, amazing yeah. thing about it. And uh, for the audience, when I was reading it, I even thought of new examples. I thought of, uh, for those of you who listen to Doctor Who, the silence from the impossible astronaut, these aliens that when you look at them, you forget about them immediately. And that's how they control the world. I thought of Cormac McCarthy's uh, speech of the judge about war being uh, the ultimate force in the universe. So for every individual, it's probably something personal, uh, something they can have a reference point. But you, uh, in your book, you talk about the, uh, basically the American, uh, Native American conception. And you write, Paul, 
with Tico as a cannibalizing force driven by insatiable greed, appetite without satisfaction, consumption as an end in itself, and war for its own sake against tribes, species, and nature, and even against individuals' own humanity. So that's a good working definition, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's totally right on because see the thing about Watiko, it inspires the the destructive, the self and other destructive tendencies in us to the point where, you know, I mean, I'm sure we all have experience of seeing how we're acting out in our lives, whether it's in our addictions or whatever, in a way that isn't serving us, that's actually killing us. And that's inspired by by Watiko. And um, yeah, and it is a cannibalistic spirit. It cannibalizes the soul. And it's like this, this Dracula, like this, this vampiric spirit that in and of itself has no life, but it feeds off of our life force. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's, that's one of the points, right? Where Tico feeds off of our horror, our negative emotions. That's how it gets its power. Yeah, it feeds its food is it cultivates it inspires in us fear and and fear is so in other words, one way of understanding what Tico is that when we identify with being a separate self with being a skin encapsulated ego as soon as we think of ourselves and conceive of ourselves as existing as a separate self, then all of a sudden there's others and as soon as there's others there's fear. And as soon as there's fear, that's the food for Watiko. And um, so, but Watiko also feeds off of when there's like this polarization in the field. And in our world today, we've never seen such polarization. So I'm pointing out that Watiko sort of think of it as like being behind the scenes. It's both cultivating the polarization, inspiring the polarization and the fear, and then feeding off of and into the very fear and polarization that it itself inspires. Yeah, well said indeed. Uh, and also very important to know is that with Tico, as it uh, fools us and feeds off of our negative energy, but it also, Paul, creates a sort of false self for us to use. Uh, like, uh, yeah, I think there's that story. I forget what it is. The There's a fungus. Again, I was thinking while reading your book, the fungus that plants uh controls the brain of an ant actually eats it out and controls right. so the ant will then shoot up spores to create more with tico so it creates almost yeah, yeah. a false self uh, which the gnostics yeah. call the counterfeit spirit right right well the counterfeit spirit that's that's exactly what i was going to bring up in the sense it's in the apocryphal text is the notion they actually have the phrase the counterfeiting spirit and that is what tico and I want to point out that that phrase was edited out of the Bible. And I point out in one of my next books that that's because the, you know, the Watiko mind virus was on the editorial board and made sure to edit that out of the actual canon, the actual Bible, because it can't stand to be exposed. So here's the way the counterfeiting spirit works. See, Watiko has no power over us or at all, you know, when we're in our true nature. It can't touch us. So what it does as a counterfeiting spirit, now keep in mind what Tico has no creativity. So it impersonates us. It puts us on, you know, which is to fool us. And it puts us on in a sense that it will offer us a false version of who we are, this limited version a traumatized, wounded, you know, um, identity, for example. And as soon as we identify with 
Watiko's fictitious version of ourselves than it has us, because then it can manipulate that identity and can control that identity. And then we become like a puppet on a string. And so that's its strategy. And so think about what I'm just describing. We actually give ourselves away. We identify with who we're not. And then we disconnect from our creative agency. That's a recipe for madness. And that's, that's what you go. Yeah, well said again. And uh, it reminds, yeah, you mentioned um, the secret book of John and how the Demiurge creates the counterfeit spirit to, uh, to, well, to fool humanity, make sure humanity's asleep, uh, Yaldabaoth and his archons. But I don't know if you've read the Pista Sophia, but it goes even further, Paul. It actually oh, geez, shows no. this factory in heaven and the archons are, before we're born, it's coding all our defeats and our fate and our soul and everything. By the time we're even born, we're kind of screwed, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm aware of the Pista Sophia too. And, um, and the thing I want to say, I'm just really uh, I'm happy that you seem to have all these you know, like those previous ones you mentioned, you know, these other ways of articulating Watiko. And that's what I'm, one of the things I'm trying to, to, to inspire in people is for each of us to creatively express our own version of Watiko. Because when you put all of these images together, that will just help us to see it. Because keep in mind, Watiko is this blindness. It's a form of psychic blindness, but it's a peculiar form of psychic blindness that actually it believes it's sighted. And not only does it believe it's sighted, it, it believes it's more sighted than people who actually have sight. And so, and the thing which is crazy about Watiko, so you, when you're afflicted with it, you have this blindness, you don't know you're blind, and you can't see your own shadow, but you also can't see your own light. So it's like an all-around blindness. And so Watiko acts out through the blind spots of the unconscious in a way such that we unwittingly become an instrument for it to act itself out in the world. And all the while we're oblivious to that. And that's why, like, I'm really, you know, so excited when I hear you say, oh, it reminds me of this or of that. I want people to creatively articulate their own image of Watiko because that can help us to see it. Because as soon as we begin to track it, and, you know, keep in mind, it's not an object out there like that we as a subject see. It's not like right. that because the very psyche that's inquiring into trying to understand Watiko is the very medium through which Watiko is operating in. It operates through the psyche. So it's a really trippy, you know, process of trying to come to terms with this. But to the extent that we see how it operates, because it's an inner disease of the soul that actually expresses itself through the medium of the outside world. And, and think about that. That's a, that's a description of a dream where the outer and the inner are reflections of each other. But it also operates through our unconscious reactions to its manifestation in the outer world. So what I'm pointing out is that when you begin to see the non-locality of it, that about how it's configuring events in our world to express itself, how it's also inspiring our own unconscious reactions, when you begin to see it in that way, its covert operations, both externally and internally, that's when you begin to see Watiko, and that's when you begin to take away its power and become empowered yourself. Yeah, and don't you think that perhaps the Gnostics were really trendsetters or advanced? I mean, Jung said they knew the secrets of the soul. So their ability to see these, uh, for lack of better words, enemies that not con not just control the stars in the macro, but controlled every part of the human brain in sort of this uh, uh, 
uh, mechanical way. They cre- they were mechanical, but they also created a mechanical aspect of ourselves. So they were a little bit different than the usual sadistic demon or god, right, Paul? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Well, ab- you're absolutely right that the Gnostics. I mean, the the translation of the word is you know people who know. You know, they have a real gnosis of the divine in a certain way. And no, they were really, really switched on and they were tracking Watiko. They just called it the archons, these mind parasites. And when you study Gnosticism, it completely maps on to what the indigenous people, you know, call Watiko. Now, keep in mind, not being an indigenous person, I'm just a modern Westerner who's translating these wisdom traditions into a, a psychological, like a modern psychological idiom that can hopefully really speak to people and um yeah and the thing about the the automaton aspect the machine-like the robot-like aspect if you remember i said watiko has no creativity but it's a master impersonator so it'll put us you know it'll it'll fool us into identifying with its version of ourselves and then as soon as we do our creativity, it taps into our creativity, but it turns our creativity against us to serve its agenda. And then we become more and more like a robot, like a, just a set of conditioned responses that are programmed. We become like a machine. And so, yeah, that's one of the, the ways of also seeing Watiko. Yeah, welcome to modern society. But uh, yeah, we've done so many shows on the Archons and I've studied them so long. It just seemed uh, with Tico is so natural and you add so much that has helped me out. And uh, yeah, we know the Archons. What about you, Vance? Well, I'm sitting here pondering evil generally. And uh, uh, Paul, I was wondering, um, is is there another type of evil that's not with Tico that you could contrast with Tico with to help people understand it? Like a passive evil or something? Yeah, no, I would say Watiko is the origin of all evil, of both individual evil, the personal shadow, and the archetypal shadow, passive evil, active evil. It's the origin of all of it. And But what I point out is that Watiko is a quantum phenomenon. And what I mean by that is that it has a superposition of states, just like light is either a wave or a particle, depending on how you observe it. The Watiko mind virus, it's the source of the greatest evil imaginable, and it contains its own vaccine. And not only its own vaccine, it's actually giving us a blessing. You know, if Watiko didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. Like to give you an idea, the, the worst thing I could ever imagine happening in the world was if Watiko disappeared. Okay, if there was no Watiko, then we wouldn't be able to evolve. It's actually catalyzing the evolution of our species. And um, yeah, and so how, but how it manifests, similar to how, how does light manifest? As a wave or a particle, it depends how it's observed. How Watiko manifests depends on one thing. It depends on if we recognize what it's revealing to us. Watiko is this revelation. It's a living revelation. It's something that we're dreaming up into our world. And if we recognize what it's revealing to us, then we get in touch with our creative genius. Okay, and then when we connect with other people who are connecting with their creative power, then, you know, then we're cooking, then we can, then all bets are off, then we can really change things. Um, But if we don't recognize what it's a revelation of, then guaranteed we're fated to continue to destroy ourselves. Yeah, so it's built into the fabric of the universe uh, of reality, then, would you say? Absolutely. And that's in my new book, I have one of the first chapters is on... um, Kabbalah, the Kabbalah, 
And where, you know, when I found the Kabbalah, it was right after I had written Dispelling Watiko. And I mean, I studied it before, but I didn't realize how, oh my God, they're unbelievable. They're creatively articulating what I just wrote a book about in Watiko. They are creatively articulating the same thing. And one of the major parts of the cosmology of the Kabbalah is that evil is like an intrinsic like fabric of the universe, that it's not separate from God, and that the highest light always emerges out of the deepest dark. And, and then they just go on and on. And I was realizing, oh, my God, they're like completely tracking Watiko. So that's why, you know, one of the chapters in the book is about that. Very good. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and uh, moving to Jung, and for the audience, of course, should we say, uh, Paul, I don't want to be picky, but you're talking about Lurianic and Shabbatai Zevi Kabbalah, because I know yeah. I'm going to get some heat of people. Wait a second. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I'm talking particularly about Lurianic Kabbalah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And um, speaking of Jung, as we were talking about you write that Jung had the deepest insights into evil. And uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, uh, for example, Paul, I love, uh, I emailed you about how much uh, David Schoen's The War of the Gods and Addiction helped my recovery. I've spoken on the show about my addiction issues and so forth. And his work just like was like that shot in the arm that I needed at one point to really turn a corner in recovery, but I always was fascinated by Jung and Bill W's letters when it seems like Jung is older and he's like, I'm just going to let it down on the table. I don't have to hide what I think about the metaphysical world. And he talks about this dark archetype, this devil that cannot be uh, integrated. That is, it's part of the fabric of reality. Is that what you're talking about when you're talking about Jung and understanding evil? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll just reiterate, in my mind, and I've studied this for over 40 years, um, I have not come across anybody who has a deeper understanding of evil than Jung. And Jung was totally tracking Watiko. He just didn't have the name. Because mm-hmm. I've studied Jung so deeply. I mean, he really saved my life when I found his work. And he calls Watiko a number of different names. He keeps on chain of the germ of evil or just a lot of different things. and. Um, but the one main thing he calls it is totalitarian psychosis. Okay. And um, now keep in mind, I'll just, I want to go back to one thing and then I'll get back sure. to the totalitarian psychosis with that guy you mentioned, Schoen, David Schoen, who wrote, you know, who wrote that book about addiction. When I found his work, because it, it really got my attention where in the subtitle he had evil and so few people actually, you know, are openly talking about evil. And he talks about how evil is related to addiction and the way he was describing it, it was like word for word, what I was writing about in Watiko. And that's why I have a big quote of Shones in the book, you know, just showing how it maps on precisely to what, you know, not just me, but every, every wisdom tradition has been pointing at when they're pointing out, you know, this mind virus. Now, getting back to Jung and totalitarian psychosis. So the thing about Watiko it's an inner disease of the soul, right? That actually somehow is able to extend itself out in the world and configure events in the world so as to reflect a psyche under its thrall. So here's how Watiko works in an individual psyche. 
when it gets into the psyche, it actually will subsume the healthy aspects of the psyche into its service. It creates this, this sort of, you could say, shadow government of the psyche. It, it um, takes control of the executive function of the psyche. It actually colonizes the psyche. It dictates to the ego. And all the while, the person has no idea. They just, you know, they're oblivious to it because the Watiko um, disease, it actually captures the regulatory agency, the immune system, the psychic immune system, so that, you know, that immune system, which would normally stop an invader like Watiko from coming in, no, it's been disabled. Now, what I just described, that's the dynamic and process of how the Watiko bug takes over a human psyche such that a person then without any awareness at all they literally become an outpost for watiko they literally become possessed by it and taken over such that they unwittingly become an instrument to act it out what i just described that inner process is getting played out and reflected in embodied form in the outer world through the totalitarian forces that are insidiously creeping all over the planet capturing the regulatory agencies and taking over our world. And, but if you see that, that how the external is, is a mirror for the internal process, that's when you recognize the dreamlike nature. And that's when you begin to wake up and that's when you connect with your creative power. So what I'm pointing out being a quantum phenomena encoded in the mind virus is its own solution. That's what I keep on going back to. But if we don't recognize that, it's gonna kill us. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And uh, Paul, uh, yeah, we definitely want to get into some solutions in the next section. We talk about another patron saint of the show beyond Jung, which is Dick. But while we're on Jung, how does the shadow and complexes work in all of this? Because, for example, you talk a lot about in your book, Egregore is a topic we've discussed. But again, we're trying to be kind of nuanced. An egregore could be a complex. A complex could be a massive public complex and the shadow. Uh, and all that, but what? How does Watiko play? Could we? Yeah. We can't really yeah. associate it with the shadow, can we? Yeah, no. And the shadow is just one aspect of it. But like a very simple way of understanding Watiko, because keep in mind, I'm describing it from as many ways in my work as I can imagine. You know, and there are all these facets of it. There are all these dimensions to it. So think about it. We're we're a whole being, and we incarnate in this plane in a physical body, and we invariably become traumatized. And when we become traumatized, what happens? We're not able, you know, to integrate the trauma. It's overwhelming by, by definition. So then what happens? We disassociate, we split, okay? And now when we split, that split off part, can if we don't work on integrating it and metabolizing it and assimilating it back into our wholeness, it can develop an autonomy and an, a seeming independence of its own. Um, in, in psychology speak, it's called an autonomous complex. Now, an autonomous complex are what the indigenous people call demons. 
Now, and that autonomous complex seemingly has this quasi will or life of its own that's adversarial to our conscious viewpoint. Now, what I just described, that's a way of describing the actual origin of the Watiko virus in, in each of our lives. And so, yeah, and, and that's, of course, that then feeds into and off of the, the shadow, both personal um, dimension and the collective dimension, the archetypal dimension of the shadow. And, um, you know, to the extent that we're not doing our inner work, then we're just food for that process. Our life force, empirically, is, is feeding into that process in an endlessly self-reinforcing feedback loop, which invariably kills us, you know? So, you know, what I'm trying to do in my, in my book, in my recent book is, you know, there is, there's definitely like stuff like I'm talking about. There's, I'm trying to explain how when, for example, think about the shadow. The shadow, what does the shadow do? How does it act itself out? How does it express itself? It expresses itself by projecting itself outside of itself. So we're not aware of our own shadow. If we don't have the willingness to look at our own shadow, we project the shadow, we scapegoat somebody else. Now think about this as being a dream because that's what what Watiko will is a dreaming phenomena. It will wake us up to the dreamlike nature. That's the blessing aspect of it. So in a dream, if you don't own your shadow, what happens? You project it out into the dream. Into the dream will walk a character or a group of people who will be the carrier of your projection because a dream is nothing other than a reflection of your own mind. And then they're embodying your own shadow. So now you have proof that the shadow is outside of yourself. So you become even more fixed in the viewpoint that the evil is outside of yourself. And, um, and the more you see that, when you amplify that, what happens? You try to destroy that person who's embodying your shadow, which is an outer dramatization of the initial inner process of trying to exterminate and get rid of your own inner darkness. So your inner process is getting played out in the external world. And of course, they're probably doing the same thing to you. And and then the more they play out your own projected evil, the more evidence you have that the evil really is out there, ad infinitum in a self-reinforcing feedback loop whose origin is within your own mind. And that's a form of madness. And that's the psychological dynamic that informs Watiko. At the same time, Paul, you bring in the work in one of your chapters of René Girard, who uh, I also, I love his work. I love his uh, famous saying, the people of the world don't create their gods, they deify their victims. So that's the other question about shadow projection. It always seems as humans, we demand a sacrifice to Azazel, a goat to Azazel. We we project our shadow out, but we want to destroy sacrifice sacrifice that and that's where the trouble is because then we want to sacrifice Jews and other minorities or yeah. something well, like I that. I think about I think about my father who, you know, and I wrote a book all about my personal process trying to give a per I was like I was using myself as a case study. It was the book that I wrote right after dispelling Watiko to show, well, here's a personal example of how Watiko played out in a person's life and that person was me. And, you know, I don't need to go into the story, but my father just, you know, he had his stuff and the way he dealt with it was to not deal with it and was just to, you know, we all know if somebody, they inherit whatever trauma or from their ancestors or when they were younger. And if you don't deal with it, you act it out on your wife, your kids or whatever. And I was the only child. So I got the transmission from my father. And um, so the thing is, is that 
um, you know, he, in a way, he was taken over. He was like, in a way, the embodiment of Watiko. And, and the more I try to like work with that and reflect it as the kid, and there was a power imbalance, the more he just doubled down on acting out the abuse. And what I began to realize was that he was willing to sacrifice me. He, if he had a choice, he would have wanted me to be in the back ward of a psych ward for the rest of my life on antipsychotic medication, rather than look at his own darkness. He would have preferred me being killed than to look at his own darkness. That's that archetypal sacrifice. That's why it's such an act of courage for somebody to have the willingness to self-reflect and see our own darkness, not only see our own darkness, but to see how we're complicit in Watiko, in the darkness of the world. You know, I know people who think, oh, no, I'm innocent. I have good intentions. I'm a loving person. I'm not colluding with what's happening in the world. And, you know, that scares me because then that the, the whole way of actually of you know freeing yourself from what Tico is closed so it's really important to have that sense of um yeah how are we participating in the genesis of what because there are all these theories about oh well did what come through like negative ets or a collective <laughs> a collective trauma or you know something you know thousands of years ago and i'm open to that i'm i actually talk about that in dispelling with but what I'm pointing out is more important is that what Tico it's actually getting created by us in this moment or not. Okay. So just like evil gets replicated over multiple generations, you know, and when you study young, he talks about this same thing with what we are actually, to the extent we're unconscious, we're actually, um, unconsciously in a sense participating in the creation colluding with watiko in this very moment but what that means is that we can uncreate it in this very moment we can undream it in this very moment that's within the realm of possibilities and on a massive scale you would say the perfect example is when jung was talking about wotan when the it was so projected and it was so rabid that it actually created this uh, collective thought form of egregore yeah. called Woden. Yeah, Once yeah. it gripped the German people, there was there's no cure. There's no turning back at one point. This is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just like what you know, because that archetype of of Wotan, that's the you know, that's like going berserk and running amok and being possessed by the archetype. And you know, then you with discernment and with awareness, you're not there. And you know, you've surrendered, and something other than yourself is coming through. And it's the, the archetype of, you could say, the shadow of God. That's just this incredible, this violence. And that can take over. You see, the thing about Watiko, it's this daimonic energy that can take over a human ego, a person, or a nation, or a species. And that's what happened to the Germans in World War II. You know, that's what Jung talks about in his famous essay on the topic. And, um, you know, so that's really important to understand that what Tico is an energy, it's a higher dimensional, transpersonal, archetypal, daimonic energy that can literally take over a human being or a group of people or a species. Encoded in what Tico, encoded in this daimonic energy, is our guiding spirit, is our angel, is our inner voice. Okay. 
And But if we don't actually get into relationship with it consciously, this daimonic energy constellates negatively and becomes this demonic energy, okay? Now, encoded within the daimon, and the daimon, the translation of the word is the inner, the inner guide, the guiding spirit, encoded, hidden within the daimon is our creative genius. So in other words, that's why one of the major things I'm talking about Two of the major ways of healing Watiko, one is to remember who you are, to connect with your nature, because then Watiko has no power over you. The second is to plug into the creative spirit that's thirsting to come through you. Our nature is creative, okay? But to the extent that we don't express ourselves creatively, Watiko is more than happy to use our creativity against us in a way that's killing us. Yeah, speaking of uh, creative geniuses, uh, now I want to come to the, as as you call him, the fictionalizing philosopher, Philip K. Dick, or maybe he called himself that. But uh, we both agree, events would agree, he is a, a prophet for our times. And he also seems to agree that the best way to really understand with Tico is through creativity. That's when we see what we haven't been able to see so far. We see the Black Iron Prison. Yeah, well, and right, I'm glad you mentioned the Black Iron Prison because Philip K. Dick, I completely agree that he he's a modern-day prophet, and he was completely tracking Watiko. He just called it the Black Iron Prison. And so I have a whole chapter on him in the book, and um, I point out, I mean, I quote him a lot, and I'm pointing out... Take a look. This is like mapping onto exactly what I'm describing in Watiko. And, um, but he was also, like you say, he was realizing the profound importance of, you know, connecting with, you know, with our creative nature. I mean, he was in a way embodying that through, you know, his creative process of, of his writings. At the same time, yeah. It's about using your creativity to see what you haven't seen, or Jung would say your active imagination, have a dialogue with your psyche to understand what's really going on. But you also write too, Paul, it seems Dick is saying, uh, well, there's that famous saying, it is sometimes an appropriate response to reality to go insane. And if I find, if I realize I'm insane, does that make you sane? Is Dick also trying to say that maybe we need to, uh, bend our sanity a bit to see through real, to see reality? Right. So you bring, um, that up makes me think, in the collective works, Young talks about it's very important to not be too healthy minded. So the point is, we're swimming in a collective psychosis. Our species <laughs> yeah. has gone mad, and we're not separate from that. We're dreaming it up. We're part of the unconscious part of us is colluding with it, is dreaming it up, and we're influenced by it. So the point is, is that this insanity, it reminds me of the archetype of the shaman. And I'm certainly no shaman. I'm only a shaman in my wildest dreams. But the shamanic archetype got really activated in me, you know, in the early 80s. And I point out that the shamanic archetype is one of the primary archetypes activated in our species. And what happens in the shamanic archetype? You get called. It's not something you would ever choose consciously. You'd have to be completely insane to do that because the suffering is so overwhelming. But you get called to do it because, because you've been traumatized because a part of you is split. So you get called to go in search, to go on the shamanic journey, 
to go on the shamanic trip to find your long lost part and to retrieve your soul. But part of the calling is to descend into the underworld and into the place of darkness, into the place of madness, where invariably a shaman, they look like they're going insane. Like I, I went insane in the in the 80s, but it was a creative insanity. It was a shamanic insanity. And yet psychiatry was more than happy to diagnose me. Oh, you're chemically imbalanced. You have this mental illness. You'll have it for the rest of your life. You need to be on medication until your dying breath. And I just, I was diagnosing them as being complete idiots while, while they were <laughs> diagnosing me. Because I knew from my own experience that I was having, it was, it was made very clear to me that I was actually plugging into something. And that's what saved me. Because my entire universe was like reflecting back to me that I was in denial of my mental illness. And I should just own that I had a lifelong mental illness. And um, so the thing about with, with Dick, you know, talking about insanity and Jung talking about insanity is that, yeah, we as a species, we're having a shamanic initiatory death rebirth process where we we're having a collective breakdown of all of the structures that are keeping us potentially that are keeping us asleep. And it's an incredible opportunity to, in a sense, to digest and metabolize that and integrate that in a more congruent way that feeds our wholeness and activates our genius. But if we don't do that, you know, then things don't look good. Not at all. It reminds me when Jung said, uh, show me a sane man and I'll cure him for <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you right. that's a great one. Yeah, and speaking of artistic uh, endeavors or the, the, the madness, I love how you talk about Colin Wilson's mind parasites, how he decided to write fiction and he exposed something amazing, this, uh, this force of the universe that, uh, that, Probably most people hadn't seen it, how we got it. I mean, then you quote in that same uh, chapter, Paul, you quote Picasso, who said, art is a lie that makes us realize the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. And the Colin Wilson thing about the mind parasites, that was so inspiring to me. So that's a fictional book, you know, piece of fiction that's actually pointing out what's actually happening in our world. You know, he called them the mind parasites and that totally maps onto what you go. And it was, it was as if it was too dangerous to speak the truth, you know, just in a, in a non-fictional way, because you, you could be just, you know, made fun of ridiculed, you know, and now you get censored, deplatformed, demonetized, right. you know, all those things. And so he, why I have a chapter on Colin Wilson, you know, who is so mind-blowingly amazing, was that he was actually in a super imaginative, creative way, pointing at something that sort of bypassed the spirit, the, you know, these gatekeepers of our world, you know, so that it wouldn't be censored. But he was pointing at the truth. He was pointing at what's actually happening. And, um, and I'm convinced in studying his work that he knew that. And so, but it's an example, it's an inspiration that each one of us can take his lead and can plug into our imagination and our creativity to articulate, you know, what, you know, to, to articulate what Tico, the mind virus, whatever you call it, these darker forces that are informing and giving shape to events in our world in a way that can help other people to see it. And when we find um, a suitable creative articulation, it becomes contagious and it goes, it can go sort of viral 
and and really activate in the collective consciousness of our species this awakening that up until now has been unimaginable. Again, well said, and now I'm getting a little download. I'm thinking of uh, the first movie, The Matrix, Paul. I don't know if you've seen it when Agent oh, sure. Smith yeah, is, yeah. Uh, he's interrogating uh, Morpheus, and he's going, you human beings are so different. You're like a virus you consume. I wish I could go there and tell, you know, Agent Smith, the problem is that humans have been infected by this mind virus. That's why you don't understand them, even though you are kind of one too. So interesting yeah. analogy. What do you think, Vance? Well, I think the whole internet has been uh, taken over by uh, the Watiko beings or being, uh, and uh, not only that, but the media itself, everywhere you look, it has all the symptoms, right? It's infectious. It it trains people's minds and so forth and so on. Do you agree, Paul? Oh, completely. The, The media, the social media, the mainstream media, so many of the instruments of information in our world have been captured you know, by, by the mind virus. And um, there's massive, this mind control going on, you know, with all the propaganda and the misinformation, and then making it harder and harder to discern, you know, what's actually true, to the point where our ability to discern gets disabled. And, um, and all of that opens us up for like, with the cognitive dissonance, you know, where our mind becomes split, so we become opened up then to be influenced by Watiko. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, um, you know, it's horrifying, but that I want to point out is a reflection of how an outer reflection of how the Watiko mind virus operates within our mind, because it fools us, it tricks us out of our right mind. And so I keep on going back to it's important to sort of to contemplate and to trip out on the the how the inner and outer realities are actually reflections of each other, because when we see that, that's to see the dreamlike nature, and seeing the dreamlike nature helps us to see Watiko. Seeing the dreamlike nature also helps us to see through the illusion of the separate self, and seeing the dreamlike nature cultivates compassion, which is the the, uh, the Watiko dissolver par excellence. Yeah, and isn't it another trick of Watiko to turn everybody against Watiko and then reinfect us with the desire to kill Watiko? <laughs> oh, completely. It's like if we're fighting the devil, if we're fighting the devil, we've already lost because we're playing the devil's game. Or like another example, if you think Watiko, oh, I need to, you know, fight Watiko or destroy Watiko, well, like we were saying, well, then you know, you're investing it with a with a, an unwarranted reality. But if you then say, oh, well, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to fight Watiko. Actually, Watiko doesn't even exist. Well, then it'll kill you, you know? And so that paradox, that double bind is pointing at something because I don't want to inculcate fear in the listeners because Watiko ultimately doesn't even exist. It has no intrinsic independent existence on its own at all. And yet it can kill us. That's pointing at something. That's pointing at the untapped immense creative power that all of us have okay yeah it's like forbidden planet the monster from the id right that came out of morbius yeah yeah it also reminds me of uh dick's famous quote to fight the empires to be infected with his derangement yes yeah 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 no it's the same thing so what we're pointing at what we're contemplating this has been articulated through every spiritual tradition throughout history and some of the greatest 
you know, the visionary artists and the thinkers and philosophers, they're all pointing at this. And what I'm trying to point out, you know, not only to help us see that, what they're pointing at, but, you know, it's time. It's the time in our evolutionary process as a species. When you see this as a dream, it's clear that the dream we're having, it's similar to like when you have a dream and you, and you don't get the message, what happens? It's a, it becomes a recurring, it becomes a recurring right. dream and it gets amplified more and more and more until you finally get the message. Something is being revealed to us through the Watiko psychic epidemic. That's what I'm pointing at. And one, and one way of understanding what's being pointed at is that you know, each of us have this unimaginable creative power. And, but to the extent, you know, but not to the extent, we don't know we have it. So in a way, we already have the solution to the world, to all the myriad world crises. We already possess it, but we don't know we have it. And all that I'm trying to point out is to the extent that I'm plugging into that in my own way and other people are, we can actually hook up with each other and hang out with each other in a way where I call it, we can conspire to co-inspire each other. And that's a real conspiracy theory. That's true. We can activate the collective genius in the field where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And we literally can dream ourselves awake. We can help each other to recognize that we're having a collectively shared dream and help each other to awaken to that. What I'm describing, this is to realize we can actually, and we're being demanded to consciously step into and participate in our own evolution. Yeah, really well said. I love how at the back of your book, you've got the four ignoble blindnesses of Wittiko. You play on the, the four noble truths of Buddhism. So there is a useful thing. What advice do you have for people who say, I think I understand Wittiko in my own way? I think I'm experiencing. What do you usually tell people to help them uh, dispel Wittiko? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 so interesting because it reminds me of quantum physics so much because quantum physics, the revelations emerging from quantum physics are offering us the medicine for it. But if somebody says, oh, I understand the quantum, you know, the greatest quantum physicist would say, well, by you saying that, that's showing that you don't understand it. And in the same way, if we think, oh, I understand what Tico, no, it's an ever expanding field. And like we were saying, it's continually shape shifting and you know, and it's distracting us, we'll put our attention outside of ourselves, you know, oh, oh, no, I'm going to try to find Watiko, you know, well, by doing that, Watiko is hiding behind your eyes, and it's getting off scot-free, and so the point is, is that when somebody actually becomes awake enough to recognize the profundity of the Watiko idea, then what I would counsel them to do is, okay, what about you in your own way creatively express what you're realizing in a way that can actually help other people to see it. It's kind of like if somebody sees the vampire who hides in the shadows and other people don't see it because Watiko is a vampire. That's a, that's one way of describing it. Mm -hmm. But when, when somebody sees the vampire and other people are blind to it, how do they actually transmit to the people whose eyes are blind how to see what's endangering them. And it reminds me, you know, people who um, feel they're in possession of the truth and they're preaching the light, but they're preaching the light to people whose eyes are blind. 
well, then the one who's really blind are the people who are preaching the light because there's, you can't, you're not going to help people to see if their eyes can't see light. You can, you know, enlighten them in that way. But what you can do is teach them the art of seeing. Now, of course, that's a whole other question. How do you do that? Yeah, that's a, yeah, the $64,000 question. And as we get to the end, and uh, hopefully we will find a solution, but obviously these last two years have really, I would say, supported your work, Paul, because never in the history of humanity have we projected so much. Never have we created such a massive egregore when 7 billion people have created this giant tulpa, which I feel is now independent and it's going to go where it wants to, regardless of what our leaders are. Never have individuals been also searching inward and questioning their reality like nevermore. So, but at the same time, you would feel, and as you write, that the whole this what's happened the last two years is also a great opportunity to see through the dream and wake up. Yeah. So in other words, I make, I'll, I'll joke with my friends that if I had a marketing department, they couldn't have done anything better than create, <laughs> create the pandemic over the last two years yeah. to like market and, you know, confirm I've been, I've been talking about this and writing about this for many, many years. And, and yeah, I'm pointing out that in the, in the COVID pandemic, that it's an, you know, first of all, it is what people, and there's a way, and I have a whole last section in my book, in my book where I talk about COVID, you know, in terms of what that there is a way of seeing it that helps us to actually see what And yeah, and there's certain gifts encoded in the nightmare of it and the horror of it. And on the one hand, so many people are going around going, wow, this is like, this is surreal what's happening. And yeah, it's easier to see the dreamlike nature, you know, it's easier to have lucidity because things are so trippy and so dreamlike and, um, you know, and COVID, like I'm saying, it's, it's revealing to us what the real virus is that's, that's endangering our species. And it's a mind virus that's not separate from us. So it's not something you have to be afraid of. And, but if you are afraid, it'll feed off of that. And, um, but you know, the coronavirus can help us to see the real, you know, the, that mind virus. And that's what we really, you know, that's what we need to see. And that's what we have to come to terms with. I would agree with you hundred percent. But at the same time, I'm sure Wittico uh, doesn't want the extinction of humanity, does it? It needs a host. Or do you think it would just move on to the next sentient being? Yeah. Well, one way of thinking about that, when it gets into one person and it sets up shop in one person and it takes over their organism you know it doesn't want to kill them too soon or it'll suffer the inconvenience of having to find a new host so um you know in that way and i'll keep in mind that when you amplify what tico it it's actually it will ultimately destroy everything including itself so you're totally right that it doesn't want to kill us too soon or it, it, it then suffers the inconvenience, you know, of having to find another host. But it's slowly, slowly growing bigger and bigger in us. It's like a tapeworm. When you get a tapeworm in your body, it'll secrete chemicals where you'll start craving food and you're thinking you're, you think you're feeding yourself, but you're actually feeding the tapeworm. And it grows bigger and bigger until it kills you. That's, that's a way of understanding what you know. 
Yeah, well said. Yeah, it reminds me also, again, you mentioned Carlos Castaneda as the predator or the foreign installation that it will, you think this is my thoughts, but it's not my thoughts. And Don Juan says, and when you think you're hungry, it is not actually you who are hungry and you'll never be sated. So it's uh, yeah, yeah, ooh, yeah. powerful oh, stuff. No, absolutely. So all that I'm, I'm like trying to, you know, because I'll talk about Castaneda, I'll talk about the Gnostics. I'm trying to show people that, look, Every wisdom tradition, they're pointing at the very thing that humanity is, in a way, refusing to look at. And that's why they're continually pointing at it. Because if we don't, you know, this is uh, like this type of blindness. It's a self-induced blindness. There is no one making us blind. We are blinding ourselves. And, and I'm just pointing at that and saying, hey, we can stop doing that. We can actually open our eyes and look. Well said. Well, we are at the end. Vance, any last question or comment for Paul in this uh, excellent interview and a book that's one of my favorite books of the last year? Well, I, I enjoyed this discussion because very, very eye-opening. So, Paul, I think you're uh, you're doing your job, and that's what we try to do here on AM Byte as well. So keep up the good work. Yeah, I just really appreciate that. And I, you know, really thank you because I feel like, yeah, I'm just playing, you know, this is my role. I just, I have no doubt when I wake up in the morning what I'm here to do. And and that I think is is like inspiring for a lot of people because that's what the medicine is for all of us is to find, you know, our calling and connect with our voice and find our vocation and have the courage to just step into that. Well said. And if, if the audience wants to get to know you more or do you have a website, Paul? Yeah, if people, if they want to, Awaken in the dream, they can go to Awaken in the Dream. That's my website. And I, you know, my books are available there if you want autographed copies. I have a ton of, of just free articles and podcasts that are going to be up there. And, um, you know, I just want to get this information out because I, it's real, it's medicine for people. Yeah. Thank you. Agreed. This is the Gnosis. We need more than ever, uh, or else we will fall asleep forever. I feel this is a turning point, and I'm very happy that you're putting out this type of work, Paul. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the show, and we look forward to your next book. Yeah, I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. And there you have it, my beloved True Seekers. Paul Levy bringing down the Archon House. As mentioned in the intro, this is the full dope. We conducted the interview on New Year's Eve. Paul was hosting visitors from out of town, and a brutal virus was visiting me. We'll continue and expand our conversation with Paul's third book, On Wetiko, coming out later this year. As mentioned too, and as a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include my interview with Jerry Morzinski and Sherry Sweeney on their clinical work and personal experiences with the Arconic Mind Parasites. A perfect companion to the show. It will chill your bones and be even more of that red pill suppository you need more than ever. Keep in mind, that 80% of shows are complete for subscribers, even as I often like to give full ones away for special occasions or with Finding Hermes. So if you find value in this content, please continue to support this red pill cafeteria. 
I'll continue raising my game and bringing you that game-changing Valis pinking information through the year. I'll stop my shilling now. But before, don't forget my voiceover availability. My new book, 10 Snackable Meditations, available in Audible now, and my Amazon wishlist as entropy is wearing down my equipment. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true non-Wetico self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.